friends. I have some exciting news before we dive into today's episode. I have just opened registration for a live one-hour class where I will teach you how to have what I call a no-enemy client conversation. Give me an hour and I will teach you how to diffuse tension, manage stress, and navigate conflict. And I designed this workshop primarily for those of us in the client services business who inherently have to know how to handle big personalities, how to transform toxic conversation dynamics, and navigate rough relationship territory. But really, these tools are helpful for anyone who finds themselves triggered by a conversation at work. And these tools that I will be teaching are game-changing, and I don't for the life of me understand why we aren't taught these things earlier in our careers. It's like we're expected to just sort of either be born with it or, you know, watch our, our superiors do it and somehow absorb it through osmosis. Nobody freaking teaches this stuff, but I will be teaching this stuff. And the first workshop will be held November 18th at 6 a.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Eastern. And then I will repeat it. I will offer it again live November 19th at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. I'm repeating it because there's folks in, in EMEA and the East Coast that will need one time and those of us on the West Coast need another time. So I'm going to do it both, make sure everybody can get part of it. Just imagine what it would be like to face a difficult conversation at work without the epic amounts of anxiety, the dread, or the anger, the defensiveness, right? Think of all the ways we respond. It's game-changing, these techniques, and I can't wait to share them with you. So just head over to noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com and sign up. So I'm going to say it again, noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com. I hope you join me. It's going to be a great time. Okay, back to the task at hand. I recently saw a Netflix documentary that rocked my world. And judging by the success of said documentary, I'm guessing you've seen it too. Or if you haven't seen it, you've heard of it. It's called The Social Dilemma. Netflix describes it as, quote, documentary drama hybrid, never heard that one before, that explores the dangerous human impact of social networking with tech experts sounding the alarm on their own creations, end quote. The strange thing about this film is that there is nothing in it that we don't already know on some level. What makes it extraordinary is that it's making us deal with what we already suspect that social media is causing instability in our democracy. It's causing instability in our mental health. Frankly, it's causing instability in our humanity. And as I was watching it, a familiar face appeared and offered her wisdom on the addictive nature of social media, which God knows I understand that at a personal level. And that familiar face belonged to none other than the brilliant Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Lemke is an associate professor and medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford School of Medicine. She's also program director of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She's a busy woman. And in 2016, she published a fantastic best-selling book on the prescription drug ep epidemic, which was called Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. She was on Terry Gross's Fresh Air talking about that book, so you may find her voice familiar if you're a fresh air addict like I am. And she has a new book coming up next year. Without a doubt, though, my favorite part of this interview is when she discloses her own personal form of addictive behavior. It's so awesome. <laughs> you're just not going to believe it. And God bless her for her vulnerability and openness. But get ready, you guys. 
I loved this conversation, and I hope you will too. And I'll see you on the other side. The way that I know you, for the people listening, is I got to meet you when I was working with you on uh, TEDx Stanford. Right. And you gave this incredible talk based on your book, Drug Dealer MD, which was all about sort of the connection you were making as a physician with the opioid crisis and the overprescription of painkillers. And you wrote this book and it was spectacular. And I met you and I was like, oh my God, she's so amazing. And you gave this great talk and time went on. And there I am sitting in my office watching the social dilemma, you know, chewing my fingernails off. And there you are. And I'm like, I know her. And then I was like, wait, I know her. Like I need to talk to her. So what I wanted to start off by asking was, First of all, do you see a parallel or a connection between your work on the opioid crisis and that kind of addiction and the kind of addiction that brought you into the social dilemma conversation? Oh, yeah. There's such a parallel there. And the parallel really is that we are living in this world that is completely saturated with addictive drugs and behavior that are constantly calling us. Mm -hmm. And they're being promoted by these very powerful corporations that want us to keep consuming. So the parallel with the opioid epidemic is you've got Purdue Pharma and other manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies that basically continue to promote and distribute deadly drugs without a care for the consequences on the average consumer leading to today's opioid crisis. You have a very similar phenomenon with the social dilemma. You've got these incredibly powerful companies, Facebook, Google, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, you name it, that, you know, they say they're about social justice and the social good, but really they're about their bottom line. Their paradigm is a capitalism model. And they've sort of rolled out these drugs, essentially these incredibly addictive drugs, without any regard for the consequences for the average consumer, especially young people. And so I think the parallels really are there in in a lot of powerful ways. Uh, One of the other parallels that I thought was so interesting too is, you know, in Drug Dealer MD, you, you were so clear about the fact that this started with good intent, right? These are good doctors Mm -hmm. trying to help patients. And what just really resonated in the social dilemma too, is that these are these are good, you know, tech founders and good coders that really start like the guy that made the the like button. He's like, I thought it would make people feel good. Like I didn't know it was going to make some people suicidal. Make people feel good. <laughs> so good that yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So it's it's also interesting how sort of the path to hell is lined with good intentions. Uh, did, does that strike you as an interesting like the parallels? It's like the economic model of capitalism and growth and profit above all else. And it all kind of started with a good idea. Like it's. Yes. I mean, I think that's important to highlight. Like when doctors first started prescribing more opioids for chronic pain and minor pain conditions, it was really with this idea that, gosh, you know, why not use this tool? And people really seem to get better. And opioids do work for pain in the short term. The problem is when you prescribe more and more of them for higher doses, longer duration, you know, you end up with a serious drug addiction problem. Right. And and you're right. That's the same thing with this technology. And also let me just emphasize, like, it's not like it's all bad. 
There right. are so many wonderful things about right. social media, you know, yeah. even about, you know, video games and, and all yep. the you know, online shop. I'm an online shopper, right? Like, I mean, Me I, I hardly go to the store anymore. I, everything is online shopping. Yeah. So it's not that we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We just want to recognize yeah. that it has reached a critical point where mm-hmm. we need to start paying attention to the CD underbelly. And, you know, we as individuals need to take responsibility for our consumption, but the corporations that are making the money and delivering these goods also need to take responsibility. You can't, one without the other is not going to make any difference. Well, it's just too big of a problem. And the thing that always scares me, and I'm going to say this and maybe somebody will hate me for it, but what worries me is the, the sort of the regulatory side of this, like testifying, as I know you've done before, to the powers that be that are in a position to create some sort of legislative framework to start bringing some regulation to this freak out. Right. I watch them listen to these tech CEOs or these people, these experts that are testifying, and they are mystified. It's like they are the people in government are so far out of their depth that I lose hope. Like, did you, is there a part of you that felt that way when you were testifying sort of about the problem between the big pharma and big medicine in bed to get, were you like, were you looking at the elected officials being like, I don't know if we can hang on this issue. Right. You know, I had a really surprising experience when I testified at the white house and I've, I've done it multiple times now. I was actually surprisingly impressed. Like we're out here in California. First of all, it seems a world apart. Secondly, I'm a cynic by nature. So I kind of thought, you know, you know, D street, like Washington insiders, like they don't really care. They don't really want to do anything. And I did not have that experience. The opioid problem was clearly a bipartisan issue that everybody could get together on. Everybody there knew somebody who knew somebody who had overdosed on opioids. So it was really, maybe it was the timing, you know, it was around 2010, 2015. It was, people were not, it wasn't like a mystery. The other thing too, is that I think that drugs, like especially prescription opioids and heroin, people like they have that association. So it's not a whole lot of convincing necessarily that, wow, you can get addicted to this drug that's almost exactly like heroin, except, you know, minus two acetyl groups. So, but that's not true for technology, right? And so your reaction to watching the legislators, many of whom are older than I am by a lot, right? I mean, I'm not going to say my age here, but the point (laughs) is I, when it comes to technology, like I feel old. Yeah, me too. This morning I was giving a talk to like a whole bunch of Kaiser doctors. I had to use this, this like software that's not Zoom and I, you know, Stanford's not set up for it. And it totally freaked out on me and asked for a password. I had to call my teenage son, he was in his math class. I'm like, dude, you have to help me. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I cannot get on here. She's like, I'm in math. I know, I know. I care about math. I do. But right now you need to stop your math and help me figure out this computer issue because I need to give a major talk in 15 minutes and I can't figure it out. And so that's the thing about the technology. Like it's a freaking mystery to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For all I know, true. there are little people inside my computer. <laughs> I don't know how the thing works. Yeah. You know, and then, but this younger generation, that's part of the problem. Like, uh, here I am trying to p- police my teenagers. I can't freaking police my teenagers. We don't, it's like, why turn the thing on? <laughs> <laughs> and actually, that leads me to 
the thing I really wanted to ask you, which was, I was so relieved that, you know, I think it was wise, wisely placed that in the film, they interview you as obviously an, an expert on addiction. And in the next frame, they show your kids and your kids are like, oh yeah, man, he's on it for two hours. Oh, whoops. I'm on it worse. And they're such, you can tell your kids are such smart, you know, with it people. And yet they're in the same boat I am, which is like, I didn't know I spent three hours on Instagram this week. That wasn't my intention. <laughs> how are you reconciling or not reconciling or what, how are you feeling about your own kids and their reliance on technology or on social media? Dude, I'm terrified. I'm really terrified. I mean, there's, there's so many unknowns, first of all, like, mm -hmm. you know, the amount of time that they spend on their devices it's just, I have no idea what that's doing to the brain. I mean, I can hypothesize, but really we won't know for another 10, 20, 30 years. You know, maybe God willing, they'll figure it out and solve the problem in a generation. But I am really, really worried. Yeah. The access that my, to, to information that, that my kids have is just terrifying. I mean, when I think about what my kids know about sex, compared to what I knew at their age. It's just unbelievable. It's like orders of magnitude different, right? Yeah. I mean, some, some term will come up and I'll be like, oh, and my kids, oh yeah, mom. Yeah. We, yeah, we know that we, we know that we know five synonyms for that. I'm just like, oh, oh God. <laughs> and the funny thing is the irony is it's, it's not even like they're more sexually fulfilled than we were. No, less, less experienced, less. more sheltered, but their knowledge, like the, what they have, the array of information that they have exposure to, which yeah. is why, which is why Bronwyn, I think that the first order of business for parents today yeah. is to have open conversations, Yeah, open conversations about technology, about social media, about what people can find online, yeah. about sex, about violence, about mm -hmm. discrimination, yeah. about, you know, conspiracy theories. Yes. Because if, because the thing is, we, we can't assume anymore that our kids aren't, don't have access to this information. We have to, in fact, assume the opposite, yeah. that they are given a menu of things to watch, you know, ingest that we would never have dreamed of. And if we don't talk about it, who knows what the heck they're going to do with that's that? That's it. That's it. I I couldn't believe the uh, thing I learned in the in the film was the the famous basketball player who literally came out publicly as a flat earther and <laughs> finally learned this. Ky, Kyrie Irving. I mean, I should know. I I'm just not a sports person, so yeah, it's like I, I'm not I, either, so. it could be named anything, and I'd be like, oh, okay. Anyway, he was mortified because eventually someone explained to him that he had gone down an right. algorithmically designed rabbit hole for his specific <laughs> taste that took him down that path. And then all of his followers started thinking the earth being round. Eerie, right? right? It's like, <laughs> oh my God. So one of the things that I find so fascinating and alarming at the same time is that this, this sort of social media addiction or tech addiction sits in this crazy, like, you know, neurological crossroads of, you know, pleasure, pain, dopamine hits, but also belief and identity, yeah. which to me is the scariest 
part of it. I mean, I'm wondering about what that means from an addiction standpoint. Like, is an addiction, like if drugs get us addicted because of certain chemicals that we now need, what does it mean to be addicted to, you know, outrage, identity politics, mm-hmm. whatever? Like, how does that play into your thinking around addiction? Right. Well, I think I think it's first important to clarify mm-hmm. that you know addiction is an extreme pathological manifestation of the behavior that we are all vulnerable to. Right. So you know we're hardwired over millions of years to approach behaviors and substances that bring us pleasure and avoid painful stimuli. Okay. So that's a start with that. That's a given. Right? That's a baseline. Yeah. That's a baseline. Right. Now you have a subset of individuals who, by virtue of heredity and upbringing and other variables, are especially vulnerable to the approach avoidant kind of paradox that I'm talking about. And those are people who are prone to addiction. They will travel much further and work much harder to get that pleasure and to maintain it, right? And the way that we define addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or a behavior despite harm to self and or others. That's just kind of like in a nutshell how we think about it. So the key piece there is not everybody is going to get addicted, but we're all going to struggle with overconsumption, right? With yeah. like spending too much time with our device or on our website or our email or Twitter or whatever it is, kind of like, you know, that fixation. But most of us, the vast majority, will be able to like recognize, oh, wow, that I don't want to be doing that. Put some barriers in place, change right. behavior. Right. And there's a small subset, about 10%, that won't recognize it and or won't be able to change the behavior or at least not easily and not not without a lot of help. Yeah. That's actually a really helpful construct or clarification because for me, sometimes I use the word addiction, I think too liberally to describe the problem I have and when, or my family has. And when you say overconsumption, it returns the power back into my own hands. Like yeah. actually- we're not quite at the addiction state. Like there's, there's quite a lot we could be doing here with boundaries. And I, I appreciate that. And do you think that nuanced understanding of, of social media and technology use helps to be less invested in using language like addiction when really it's, it's a consumption management problem? Well, it's so very, very interesting. So I'm coming out with a new book next year called Dopamine Nation, Finding oh. in the Age of Indulgence. Oh, so Anna, that title. Like it? Finding balance in the age of indulgence. Yes, I like it. I love it. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm really, really excited. I really hope it will help people. But when we were thinking about what to call it, we specifically wanted to avoid using the word addiction in the title or even like in the back cover because, you know, we didn't want people who conceptualized as addiction as like a very severe form of psychopathology to feel like they couldn't identify. We want, the book is really for the average person. It's, It's not specifically for people with addiction. It's really for all of us who are trying to manage our consumption in this dopamine saturated world. So I think you're absolutely right. There, there's a way to introduce these ideas and yeah. talk about how we're all vulnerable. So that's a big part of the book yeah. that we're living in an unprecedented time and place when our access to high dopamine goods is so ubiquitous and so infinite that we've all become vulnerable to the 
psychopathology of compulsive overconsumption, otherwise known as addiction. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, we, it's still within our means to do something about it because yeah. we're not, you know, necessarily suffering from that extreme form of psychopathology, which is known as addiction. So the book is really, it's a very, it sort of sets the stage and is a very practical, but like, what, what can you do? You know, here are the steps that you can, and it's not just like, oh, you know, block some apps and, you know, turn off the flashing colors. Flashlights. It's really more of like a deep kind of philosophical and psychological exploration yeah. of what, first of all, how the brain works. So there's yeah. a lot on the basic neuroscience of what's happening in the brain in terms of pleasure and pain. Mm -hmm. And also then some very practical ideas about sort of setting barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice, which can be everything from Facebook to potato chips to right. romance novels. Right. Oh, that's a strange new inclination I've picked up in coronavirus times. It's the weirdest thing. I used to read really high quality literary fiction on a, like I was up to speed with the Man Booker Prize and the Pulitzer. Like I was a good reader. And for some reason during coronavirus quarantine, I started getting real into crime novels and whodunits and very clear endings. Like, I don't know. And now my brain is addicted to easy books and it's hard to go back. Okay, so so Broadwin, you are going to love my book. I can't because, wait. Because my book includes... My addiction to romance novels. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. By the way, follows the exact same. Like I was a humanities major at Yale. <laughs> right? I never read a romance novel in my life, and then like ten years ago, at a point when I was like having you know some marital stressors, totally. middle age. I like discovered romance novels. I became seriously addicted. And like, I, then it was like, I, I couldn't read anything that like basically wasn't the simplest language. Simplest, simplest narrative. Plotline. You know, I was just like, let's go. Yes. Oh my God. You know what? I fell into that rabbit hole too. And it all started with freaking Twilight. I blame Twilight. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to love my book? You're going to love it. I Twilight was my gateway drug. Wait, hold on. Anna, this is, I just want to really honor the fact that you are willing to put yourself on the line like that. Like that is so yeah, As a Stanford psychiatrist, right? <laughs> People are going to love your book. People are going to freak out and love this book. <laughs> I mean, I think that is, was that a hard decision for you, by the way, to disclose It was really that? hard. It was really hard. And I ultimately made that decision because my, my interview, my, my interview, bleh, my book, <laughs> It's basically, it holds up people in recovery from addiction as sort of modern day prophets for the rest of us. How to use the wisdom of recovery to figure out how to live in this crazy dopamine saturated world. So therefore, I had to ask a bunch of my patients if they'd be willing to share their stories and be interviewed separately outside of clinical care for the book. And like, they were so willing to share their stories. I thought, how can they you know, how can I ask them to do that and not be willing to share my story? So I, I decided wow. to do it. That and your reaction is, is great because it just, I mean, I know I'm not alone is the thing, right? Yes. Is, I really am not like, I don't really have the addictive personality. I mean, I have a lot of other problems, Yeah. but yeah. I, that's not my, but my, my experience was such that, wow, like, even if you don't have that propensity, like we're all getting addicted to stuff. Like 
It's yeah. in the environment, you know? Yes. I can't believe like we're talking about this on the podcast too. It's very funny. It's actually perfect because I've been embarrassed. Like I always, Saturday morning, oh, yeah. I, I send out a little missive to the people on my newsletter <laughs> list. Like, this is what I'm reading. This is what I'm watching. So I'm listening to. And it started, you know, pretty cerebral. Like it was, you know, some very smart commentary on X and Y. Now it's like, oh, I just finished the crime, true crime podcast about some missing person. And I'm like, people, I got to pull my head out of this mess. (laughs) Oh my God. It's so funny because that's how exactly how addiction happens. Like it starts out sort of benign. It's sort of, it's congruent with your values and your life choices. You're going along, but all of a sudden it's like, you have to up the ante and then you got to up a little bit more and then you drink it in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) And you're pouring something strong into your coffee and you're like, how the hell did I get here? That is, how did it get to this, right? How did that's it get to right. This? And yeah. I have a, like, did you know, did you start writing this book before we all went into quarantine? Because everything oh, is yeah. so, way well, up. First of all, it's, it's, it's written, it's done, but it's not coming out to August of next year. Cause you know, that pipeline is so slow and back. So you don't want to be launching right now. So yeah, right. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> But um, yeah, the book has been, I've been writing it for about the last four years and like really focusing on it. And and in some ways, you know, when when quarantine hit and like I had all my travel and talk for the opioid epidemic slowed way down, it was great because I was about like, let's say three quarters of the way through. And I don't think I would have met my deadline if I hadn't just been able to like hunker down. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That is really... And so now that you're six months into this, whatever this new normal is, I hate that phrase, but it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> do you feel like there's like the book couldn't be timed any better, right? All of this thinking, all this research, it's only more true now than it even was six months ago, it seems like. Well, it's a great question. So I have discovered that when you're writing and publishing, when you're publishing a book, really timing is everything. And if you're off sync with what people need and want. It could be a really great book and it just could tank. And likewise, it could be kind of mediocre and rise to the top if that's like what people are. So I don't know about the timing. I mean, in some ways, you know, the title is, you know, Dopamination, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. I mean, in some ways you could argue like, hey, this is a hard time. It's not the age of indulgence. You know, we've got, you know, major world food poverty problems. Except that my point is that what we have is these very potent, high dopamine goods that are incredibly cheap and and consumed more by people living in poverty now than people not in poverty. So it's that nexus of like world crisis plus high cheap, you know, high dopamine, cheap consumption, luxury goods. So I I do hope that, I do think it's very relevant. I think it really speaks to the time that we live in now. Mm -hmm. I think it's a unique and unprecedented time in our, in human history, really. Like if you look at there's this whole notion of the Anthropocene. I don't know if you've heard that, oh. that word. Yeah, like it's like, talk about an effect of the Anthropocene. Like it's it's climate change and it's dopamine change, you know? It's yes. like- and, it's, and just to clarify, Anthropocene is, is, is we're like in the first era ever of planet Earth that we know of, where our sort of, our demise is being caused by humans, not by some extra, like not by some natural occurrence or lack of a natural occurrence. It's us that's driving. What do we do, right? And if you look at the number one cause of, you know, morbidity and mortality in this country, it's drug overdoses, alcohol addiction, 
you know, diabetes due to obesity. I mean, and it's hitting, of course, rich nations are at the vanguard with, you know, the United States number one, but even emerging and poor economies are, you know, suddenly infused with these multinational corporations and bagged potato chips and you name it. It's a huge, huge problem. Okay. One, one last question before I let you go, because I, you've already had a crazy busy day and I want to wrap this up, but (laughs) one of the- This didn't go where I thought it would. We're like sisters from another mother. I mean, I'm so relieved. I'm so relieved. I cannot begin. You've helped my self-esteem already and you didn't even realize it. But the thing I wanted to ask you, which I thought, you know, really struck me from your first book too, which, which was our relationship to pain. And, you know, in, you know, the, the days of yore, pain was seen differently than it is now. And I noticed for myself, so first I want you to talk about that. And then the second thing is I've noticed in myself, I reach for my Instagram when I want to avoid feeling something uncomfortable. That's right. Right. So talk a little bit about just our relationship to pain and if there's a connection between technology. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, you know, so not only is the relentless pursuit of pleasure ultimately going to lead to pain, but the avoidance of pain leads to pain. And the reason for that is because it resets our pain, pleasure, balance, or our reward pathways. Mm -hmm. And yet we have this cultural idea that has really totally taken hold in medicine and outside of medicine over the last 150 years or so, that somehow pain is a marker of psychopathology or of something being wrong. Or, you know, if I'm in pain, I must be ill or I must be not be around the right meds or I, I must be, I should go on meds or whatever it is. Even minimal discomfort is something that we've lost the ability to tolerate. And that is because of our pleasure pain balance. So in my book, I'll talk a lot of, I talk a lot about this metaphor of the pleasure pain balance and how we reset the balance. So we've kind of changed our own homeostat around like how much pain we can tolerate. And now a little bit of pain and people freak out and not because they're like selfish or entitled. It's because they literally aren't used to feeling pain. They have no mental calluses. So what we really need to do is like actually with intention, invite pain into our lives so that we can build up some mental calluses and reset our reward pathways. And that's what the whole book is about. It's like, it's like, it's not just like stop pursuing pleasure. It's like, you know what? Do things that are hard. Yeah. Well, I I learned this phrase recently called frustration tolerance and how important that is for success and performance. And when I look at some of the people, you know, just in my own family history, those with the lowest frustration tolerance levels never kind of were able to push through any major barriers, whereas the ones with high frustration tolerance were were able to just knock down barriers and and do their thing. And that's that's all part of this, right? Yeah, but what's really key about this concept of frustration basically just speaks to like how much frustration or negative emotions you're really you're able to just tolerate and sit with yeah. and not try to get rid of or you know distract yourself from is that it's actually you you can improve. So there are probably innate traits that people have giving them different degrees of frustration, but it's also you can exercise frustration tolerance and get better at it. And you can also do the opposite and always kind of, you know, chemically cope or digitally cope or what have you and lose the ability. So I think it's, it's this idea that we really have to like, we have to like exercise those muscles to be strong. 
you know. Yeah. And at a time like this where there's a lot to be frustrated about, boy, we have all manner of, what is, the, what is that <laughs> phrase? Another fucking growth opportunity? Like, yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's an interesting thing too, because, you know, I, I do see, I, I do see a lot of patients and I think this is real, who have to some degree sort of like a news addiction, right? Oh yeah. Where like in some ways, as awful as the news is, people sort of get comfort from being in the echo chamber of other people who agree with them. And, yeah. and I think it is a, like a, you know, like a feeling that social connection and being yeah. validated in your opinions. We get a dopamine hit from that, but I think that can really be dangerous because then people are like outraged, but they're sort of like excited to be outraged. Yeah. Well, it's very invigorating. Yeah, it is. Feel like there's something very like, Whoa, that felt good. It's like when a dog like shakes its body. You know what I mean? <laughs> And I I feel that myself. My husband loves to watch the the commentaries, and he listens to Fox News and to MSNBC and in CNN because he he wants to know what everybody's saying. That's smart. He, but he gets so lathered up, he'll come to bed and he'll just be like, "God, everything sucks." I'm like, "Um, I'm reading Chapter Seven of Twilight for the third time, so I can't deal with you right now. Who's worse? Who could say?" <laughs> oh my god. Wait till you read my description of Twilight in my book. You're going to die. I have never been this excited for a book to come <laughs> out because I feel like it's going to be so validating, you know? I know. Because it's so and embarrassing, scary. right? I mean, it was written for teenagers. And like, oh, you know, totally. I was and like it's a, 40 when I read it. And it's such a messed up relationship, but I just... Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the writing isn't even that good. Who cares? terrible. Who cares? I want to live in forks. I want to have a gorgeous vampire boyfriend and I want... Grab my neck. (laughs) Anna, I cannot thank you enough for this. I thank you for your honesty and your vulnerability and I'm going to... Can we pre-order the book yet or when does that happen? I think it's going to be available on Amazon any day now. Any day. Oh my God. I will make sure it's in the show notes and that people know to get it. I'm so excited for you and I'm so grateful for your time and also for the work you're doing in the world. It really is powerful. Well, you're always such a delight. You bring this infectious energy and enthusiasm and charm. You're so just so Thank charming. You. Thank <laughs> you. Isn't she just a treasure? She has offered to come back and speak to us about Dopamine Nation once it launches. So stay tuned for that. And I just want to thank you again for spending time with me. I also wanted to remind you to go over and sign up for my, my live workshop, my No Enemy Client Conversation Workshop. Just head over to noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com and shine on you crazy diamond. I'll see you next time.